0: Hey, everyone. It's me, Rebecca. I'm currently on maternity leave. And while I'm away, we picked out some of our earlier episodes from the No Limits Vault so that you can get caught up and enjoy while I'm off. And just so you know, I pre-recorded this, so I actually am spending time with my baby right now. Bye.
1: It was the first risky thing I did in my career. Everything else I'd done according to plan, you know, college, law school, clerkship, and then at this point, law firm. And at this point, I just said, I'm going to take a chance on something I believe in. From ABC, it's No Limits.
0: I'm Rebecca Jarvis, and each week we're talking to the most bold and influential women playing at the top of their game, trying to demystify success and what it really takes to get there and all the trade-offs. Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. On today's episode, Deborah Lee has always been an overachiever. From her days at Harvard Law School, where she pursued a JD, while at the same time pursuing a degree from the Kennedy School of Government, to rising the ranks inside of BET, spending 32 years there, 13 as the CEO. Throughout her time, Deborah proved to be one of the most powerful women in the media industry. Recently, she was recognized by the Grammy organization with the Salute to Industry Icons Award, the first and only woman ever to receive this. But like so many leaders we've had here on No Limits, Deborah's path was not clear cut. In fact, when she made the choice to leave her high-powered corporate law job to go work for a then-unknown media company called BET, most of the people around her said she was crazy. As CEO, she had to make decisions that sometimes weren't popular with the company, and not always popular with the public, either. There was a time that you're about to hear about when protesters showed up right on her doorstep. But what's incredible about Deborah is her ability to cut through the noise and make decisions that are, at their heart, authentic and true to the success of the company and the brand. Here she is to tell you her story. Deborah Lee, welcome to No
1: Limits. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. I'm really excited to have you here
0: with us, one of the most powerful people in media. Oh, thank you. You don't even have to thank me for it because it is a fact. 32 years at BET. That's right. You grew BET into the number one network among African-American adults. It's now been that for 17 years. And your own career... Part of why I wanted to have you here is because I think your career is emblematic and illustrative of how many people find their careers. Mm. You started at this little-known company called the right. ET at the time. Right. Came in as the general counsel. Mm-hmm. Moved into the COO role, eventually became CEO. Right. And um, I don't know if you know Belinda Johnson. She's the COO of Airbnb. Oh. She also came in as the general counsel. Oh,
1: really? Oh, I didn't know that.
0: And I, I just think it's smart because, you know, we want to talk about building blocks. Right. And how do you get to that C-suite? How do you get to that top job? Right. And your career is illustrative of that. Yeah. Oh, great. But let's go back to the beginning. All because right. Because you grew up in the segregated South. Yes. Did you, as a kid, think law is my path?
1: I... I sometimes thought law would be my path, but mainly because my father wanted to be a lawyer, and he never became a lawyer. I was his third child, fourth child, and so he put all his hopes and dreams in me. And and then I had an aunt who was a lawyer, one of the first black lawyers, female lawyers in Detroit, uh, and she was very close to my father. And so I heard a lot of talk about being A lawyer at a young age. At the dinner table. At the dinner table. And my aunt would give me books. She went to Mount Holyoke. She would give me books about Mount Holyoke. And I kind of knew I was expected to go to Ivy League school because that was around the time Ivy League schools were admitting a a large number of uh, African-American students. And so, you know, there are a lot of goals um, uh, that uh, my father laid out. That's a lot of pressure too. It was a lot of pressure and in fact um, I gave in (laughs) to the pressure um, reluctantly my senior year at Brown University. At the last minute I decided I wanted to be a fashion designer and I was sorry I hadn't gone to the Rhode Island School of Design so I told my father, I said I'm going to take a year off and you know think about this art school thing and he said well if you do that and you decide to go to law school you'll pay for law school. I won't pay for it. So I knew what that meant. So I went to law school.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So that made the decision for you. That made
1: the decision for me. But I always wanted to give back in a way. And so Uh, Besides my father talking about law, I knew the legal system had been the way uh, that a lot of civil rights advocates had changed the world. And so, you know, I had uh, Thurgood Marshall as a role model, and Constant Baker Motley, and I wanted to help my community, and I wanted to make an impact. So, you know, I went along with it, thinking that's what I was going to do.
0: Did you ever think about politics?
1: Well, when I got to Harvard Law School, and that's a whole long story, after Brown, I I went to Harvard, um, and I decided I hated law school. Why? uh, Because they wouldn't talk about policy or politics or changing the world, none of that. At, At Harvard Law School, they talked about the black letter law. And it's like, well, what did the court say? What did the judge say? It's all precedent. It's all precedent. And um, in the late 70s, when I was there, they were particularly not interested in talking about women's rights or rights African-American or people of color. And I just found it a very oppressive environment. Um, and so I didn't want to drop out because I would be letting my father down. And uh, so I applied to the Kennedy School of Government.
0: And then you did this dual
1: program. Then I did this dual program. Which,
0: by the way, going to law school anywhere, let alone Harvard Law School, is a full-time gig. right?
1: And then you add. Add on, yes. I know, I've always had this. You're an overachiever. I always have been. (laughs) (laughs) Always have been. I'm trying to work on that now and learn how to relax, but that's not working out too well. So I went to Kennedy School. So I did one year law school, one year Kennedy School, and two years at both. And I came out thinking I was going to go into an administration. I never wanted to run for office. Uh, but at the Kennedy School, they teach you how to be assistant secretary of something or secretary of something. Uh, so I thought that's where I was headed. And then after law school, I went to, uh, D.C. and, um, clerked for a judge, for a federal judge, and during that year, Ronald Reagan won as uh, president, and I decided I didn't want to go into a Reagan administration. So I went to a law firm to hide out till the Democrats came back. Well, if you remember those times, it took the Democrats 12 years to come back.
0: It reminds me a little bit. I, I When I went to college as an undergraduate, I studied mm-hmm. economics, but I really was interested in the law. So I also studied constitutional law. Oh. And I like the idea from your story that there was sort of this, this pedigree, for lack of a mm-hmm. better word, that your father wanted for you. Right. It seems like you wanted it a little bit a little for yourself. Bit, yeah,
1: I thought it was a... Way I could be a change agent.
0: I think oftentimes people th- see these choices as one or the other, black and white choices. Right. Oh, I either have to do the law school thing or I have to study this right. and therefore I can't do this other thing. And I think that the world, if you are a creative, resourceful person, mm-hmm. opens up to you more opportunities than just having to dedicate yourself to one thing or right. the other.
1: Right, right. And I tell young people that all the time when they're obsessing with what I should, what they should major in in college. I'm like, just go to college, you know, have a good time, learn things, you know, focus. but you don't have to know what you want to do in your career right now. There's totally. plenty of time for that. And my career, as you said, is uh, illustrative of that. <laughs> I came out of law school thinking I was going to go into government. I never went into government. Um, After five years at the law firm, I was tired of waiting for the Democrats, so I said, you know, it's time to do something. Uh, I had been uh, focusing on communications law, so I wanted to go in-house with a a media company. Most of the media companies were in New York. I did some interviewing uh, in New York. Uh, And then I had a small client called BET uh, and the founder and CEO. CEO at the time, Bob Johnson, asked me to come and have lunch with him and said they were looking for a general counsel. So, And they were located in D.C., so I didn't have to move to New York. They were black-owned, which was very uh, important to me. And I saw media all of a sudden uh, as my way to be a change agent.
0: And how did people around you react to that when you said, I'm leaving the comforts of this law firm for a
1: little startup? Well, the partners at the law firm had never heard of BET. Because we didn't even have cable in D.C. yet, I worked on the original cable wow. franchise. So this was 1986, and cable had not even come to uh, the District of Columbia. So the partners were like, "You're going where?" And they were used to, you know, associates leaving to go into government, but they weren't used to associates going to a company because there are not that many corporate corporations in D.C. and especially the one they had never heard of. So that was a little weird. My father, who <laughs> lived in Baltimore, at the time said what (laughs) (laughs) did you
0: was he able to understand what the idea of cable was at the time
1: uh I think he knew a little bit about that um but he was so proud of the fact that I was at this prestigious law firm with chandeliers and wood paneling and you know he just thought my career was made and he said why would you leave uh Steptoe and Johnson that was the name of the firm and I said dad I'm just not having any fun And he looked at me and he said, if it was supposed to be fun, they wouldn't call it work.
0: I definitely heard that from my dad along my path, too.
1: I mean, and only a 25-year veteran in the Army can say something like that. It's like he never thought work was supposed to be fun. Uh, So he thought I was taking a risk. The partners thought I was taking a risk. So it was the first risky thing I did in my career. Everything else I'd done according to plan, you know, college, law school, clerkship, and then at this point, law firm. And at this point, I just said, I'm going to take a chance on something I believe in. And bet on myself. Yes.
0: Did you, in your mind, as you were making that choice, was there sort of a fallback of, well, things are going well enough for me at the law firm, so worst-case scenario, I go back to another law firm?
1: Yes, that was always a backup. And then I also heard a voice in my head, that, again, my father, saying, well, with a law degree, you can always hang out a shingle. Not <laughs> not that I was interested in that, but I thought, you know, I could go back into a law firm. So I did have some sort of a safety blanket.
0: And, okay, so you, you end up in BET. You're mm-hmm. the general counsel. When you get there, was it a this was the right choice or was it a wow, what have I done?
1: (laughs) Uh, There was a, a, a few years of wow, what have I done? One, because I was the first in-house counsel, so people didn't know what to do with me, you know. And, and when I started working there, Bob Johnson said to all the other executives, you can't sign any contracts without Deborah reviewing them. And well, they loved that. Yes, of course. They welcomed <laughs> me with open arms. Oh, great. This lawyer is going to tell us what to do. Um, and so that was hard. It took me a long time to make relationships with the other um executives and to convince them that I was there to help them, not to be a hindrance and not to stand in their way. And, you know, you there's a 24-hour, you know, media company. They had to put on programming 24 hours. So if I'm holding something up, I'm keeping programs from going on the air. So I tried very early on to make it clear the legal department was going to be a service department. We were there for them. Then I didn't have very much of a legal um, expense budget Mm. uh I remember I think the budget was $100,000 at that time and and Bob Johnson may have paid me 50,000 <laughs> so wow. he said well you're a lawyer what do you need outside counsel for I said I'm I'm not an expert in every legal <laughs> aspect of business. Um, so I couldn't call outside counsel much. So I had this small group of friends who were general counsels at other companies and we would get together once a month and I would kind of I would get free advice. <laughs> Walk down your list of the needs. <laughs> right. Right.
0: What would what's a traditional budget for a department like that uh, inside of a company? A
1: couple of million dollars. If if at that for that Company at that size, uh, wow. and you know it could be up into the hundreds of millions for larger companies. Um, so yeah, I was the only attorney; I had no way to ask outside counsel for help. I had no budget to hire anyone. So for the first couple of years, I, I prayed a lot, and I <laughs> uh, um, and there were no lawsuits. Luckily, there were no lawsuits, so that uh, that really helped a lot. Uh, but it, one big lawsuit could have put BET out of business in those days. It really could have. I mean, if you know, we had made a mistake or someone came in with trademark and copyright or anything. Uh, so th- those were very uh, nervous years.
0: <laughs> I would imagine. Yeah, yeah.
1: So were luckily you, the department grew, I grew, the company grew. Were so. you
0: in your head thinking at the time, I want to progress, I'd like to be? Did you have your eye on the
1: C-suite and the COO role? Not at all. I thought I was, when I started, I was vice president and general counsel. I got promoted somewhere along the way to EVP and general counsel. I thought that was as high as my career was going to go. For, for a lawyer, that was it. You know, you were happy to be a general counselor, you're happy to be have another executive title. Uh, and I had no, um, no, eyes on anything else. In fact, there was no chief operating officer at the company. You know, the next person was Bob Johnson, and it never looked like he was going anywhere. (laughs) It was his company. Um, So um, when he offered me the COO position, I was very surprised. And, um, and, I was excited though because by that time I had three or four other titles I was doing some business and and I kept trying to give up the general counsel title because that's something you really you had to keep current on the law you really should you know be committed to that um to that position and I felt like I was Getting pulled away from that without the backup that I needed. So the great thing about becoming COO, I got to hire my first general counsel. So that made and me give them
0: a slightly larger budget right, than when you were working, right?
1: With. <laughs> and more understanding because I had legal background. Um, so I always say that's when I began to sleep better at night that I had my own general counsel with a bigger budget and you know by that time we had gone public we were the first african american company to be traded on a new york stock exchange which was an incredible experience. I mean, I can't tell you how proud I was at, to see all the black people who worked at the New York Stock Exchange all these years and had never seen a black company come through there. They were so proud. They were high-fiving us on the floor. The stock went from an offering price of $17 to $29 on the first day. Phenomenal. So, all of a sudden we were a success story and not just a black Company success story, but an American success story, Mm -hmm. and it was it was truly incredible.
0: And so you were there that day. I I was there. I Mm -hmm. I, um, early in my career, I used to do a lot of the reporting from the New York Stock Mm -hmm. Exchange and the Nasdaq when the bell ringing ceremonies would happen, and it it genuinely would bring tears to my eyes. Oh yeah, because you see that moment of a company going public is the epitome of so many things that right. they've worked for mm-hmm. and the group all coming together and right. you and your team. Yep,
1: the executives. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, was that a moment for you where you felt like, okay, I've sort of made it like this is what it was about?
1: There was some feeling of, um, you know, having come to a very high success point. But I think from my perspective, especially as general counsel, I just knew it was going to be more work. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden we had to start doing quarterly yes. reports and um, <laughs> dealing with the SEC and all of that. So, you know, it wasn't like euphorium, you know, I am made it and I'm done. <laughs> it's like, right. oh, this is very nice. Uh, and we didn't have the executives didn't have stock ahead of time we got stock as part of the offering um so we didn't have the same um success feeling that Bob Johnson did <laughs> because yes. he he owned the company he and um uh, uh TCI and John Malone and uh, HBO had a small piece of the company also so so I'm sure they felt it a lot more than we did. I remember having to get back to work that day. <laughs> and yes. And okay. Uh, and we had some hiccups along the way learning to be a publicly traded company, uh, but it was it was so exciting. And I I, I just remember more than anything else uh, the excitement of the people at the New York Stock Exchange. There was one uh, guy uh, I can't remember his name, um, but he was the only African American. Male with a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. I think his name was Harold Dooley, just came back to me. And he called me like the week before, and he said, I would be so proud to stand with you all on the day you go public. And, I mean, things like that I, you know, had never thought about. But he was the only black man, the only black person who had a seat on the New York Stock Exchange. And he wanted to be there with us that day. Um, so it, w- it was an exciting time. It that was, is so yeah, cool. really exciting.
0: You talked about the fact that you end up in the COO role mm-hmm. because someone else was looking out for you. Because yes. Bob was saying, right. you've done a good job. Right. After you were there, was there a hunger to continue climbing, to get to that CEO role? At what point was it sort of in your consciousness of, I'd like to be the CEO you know, of this company?
1: It was almost immediate because... He had never had a COO before, so the day it was announced that I had that position, everyone started treating me like the heir apparent. They really did. And I didn't realize it was going to be that way, but everyone said, oh, Bob's preparing to leave at some point Mm. and that's um, both
0: good and bad
1: yeah and, and it exactly was it was good and bad um you know it was good because um i could start the training process to become ceo now i think how long did he stay after that a while um and Viacom eventually uh, acquired BET so that was another uh, transformational um, corporate event but during that time um i had there were other parts of the business i had to learn i mean because i was general counsel i knew the legal side i knew a lot of the business side but i didn't know anything about advertising or programming or you know i knew a lot about affiliate sales cuz those are uh, huge contracts for us but there are other parts of the business i had to learn and so it gave me several years to be able to do that. And people, if started calling me, you know, people, our partners, people we were doing business with, if they couldn't get a hold of Bob, so it was a good it was a, a good training period before uh, Bob Johnson left. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I'd have to say I did have my eye on it because everyone treated me like that.
0: And in terms of what you needed to learn along mm-hmm. the way. What's the most complicated thing that you have to learn on your path to CEO? Wow. Um,
1: that's an interesting question. I think there's a, there's a bit of a learning curve depending on how much of the company you've seen before then. But I think the real thing you have to learn is how to manage people. Mm. And that's not something they teach you in any business school, or well, maybe no. a little bit in business school, but experience. not a lot. Yeah, it takes experience. And learning how to um, um, motivate executives and how to put together a team and how to make sure the team is invested in your success um, how to have a vision. All of a sudden, people were asking me what my vision was. No one asked me that when I was COO. <laughs> COO, you're just supposed to implement. You You don't have time for a vision. And uh, all of a sudden, I had to start thinking about where do I want to take this company? So that was a, um, a big uh, transition. So I think it's really, you know... Ha- Knowing yourself, knowing the company, knowing what you want your legacy to be, and, you know, of course, making the company, keeping the company, in my case, profitable uh, was a big part of it. And as I said, um, in 2001, Viacom acquired us, so now all of a sudden we're a division among many other divisions, uh, which was good and bad. Uh, It was great because they had so many other brands like MTV and uh, Nickelodeon, so Sumner Redstone and... uh, uh, Mel Carmazon really believed in brands and they wanted BET because they they loved the brand. Um so there were people other people to ask how to do things and more resources. Um but it was also, you know, um a process of learning how to deal with new bosses, <laughs> yes, and 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 peers, and and I think in a way it's interesting when I look back on it. I think in a way it motivated the BET executives even more to show that we knew what we were doing and we could do it just as well as any other division uh, at Viacom. Um, and so it was a learning process, but it was also a a, a period of great energy and and motivation and and. And one of the things I think that sets uh, BET executives apart uh, is that they really are invested in the community. Mm -hmm. I mean – the, the Black Community cares so much about b e t so if we do something great, they're excited about it. If we do something wrong, we hear from them <laughs> very loudly um so I think you know that that loyalty and that concern about the African American community really um uh, incents our executives to to work harder sure uh, it's a real passion uh about the brand and about what we do from day to day so and and our audience feels that way they don't expect us to just be a television network. They expect us to be a television network that cares about them, that reflects them when something, you know, horrible happens in their community, to rejoice with them. I mean, I remember the 10-year anniversary of the election of Barack Obama. I was in Grant Park doing a BET interview (laughs) five minutes before the results were announced, and they were talking about how is it to be in Grant Park, and I was like, oh, this is wonderful. And we still didn't really think he was going to win. And then five minutes later, they called the election. And I'm in this, you know, environment where people are crying and you've seen photos of Oprah crying and Jesse jack I mean, but that's the way the whole and I think that was you talk about just, the, you know, moments of wow, we've really accomplished something here. Uh, I really felt that way because of the coverage we had given um, uh, President Obama and the get-out-the-vote campaigns we had. And um, so that was a really exceptional moment. I, I bet. <laughs> I skipped ahead a lot. But, no. Uh, <laughs> well,
0: it's, I think it's interesting because the point that you raise about the importance to the community and right. the, the type of feedback um, – and along the way, in the early two thousands, you had some something of the opposite happen with the community when uh, there were a number of people who started protesting oh, right. some of the content, yes. and you ha- a reverend put together a protest right. and brought the protest to your lawn,
1: to my, house. to your home, mm-hmm. and Be- primarily because he did not like hip hop music, and you know probably like sixty five percent of what we were doing at that time was hip hop music. And I had back to the people asking me what my vision was when people asked what my vision was, I would say it is to do more original programming because that's what our audience wanted. They wanted us to have dramas and sitcoms and award shows they wanted us to look like a b c or c b s or n b c they didn't they never understood what the difference was between us a cable network and a broadcast network. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wanted that quality. They wanted that type of programming. So I had just taken over as CEO uh, maybe a year earlier, and this minister decided he did not like hip-hop music, and he was going to bring his congregation down to my out- on my lawn outside. Luckily, I had a fence around my house, a gate. Uh, but they would stand out there on Saturday afternoon and with bullhorns, and my neighbors couldn't figure out what was happening. But it made me look inside myself and say, what do I want BET to stand for? And I was really, you know, unnerved by the fact that he didn't go to Jay-Z's house. He didn't go to Ludacris's house. You know, I guess mine was the closest. Um, But, you know, I felt like I was carrying the weight of all these um, young black hip-hop artists who, you know, were saying what they felt but wasn't exactly appealing to women or uh, to companies or to governments and yeah that was a that was a stressful time
0: hear more from deborah lee after a quick word from our sponsor hey i'm andy mitchell a new york times best-selling author and i'm sabrina Kohlberg a morning television producer I would imagine that there had to be somewhat of a duality because part of the argument was was against stereotypes, right. negative stereotypes, stereotypes in the African-American community. Right. And I would imagine that in your role, there's the sort of the business side. Mm-hmm. And then there's also the acknowledgement of. It's not perfect if I could change it and make it more more people want a piece of content that is the kind of content that makes us all feel great about everything. Right. You know what I'm saying? Yes,
1: I exactly know what you're saying because it's a balance I had to deal with every day. I got daily report card on ratings from Nielsen. That showed us exactly what our audience watched and what they didn't watch. And then we had pressure from our audience to be a certain quality, which was great, but also to we, we had a, um, a goal of shining a light, but not to shine a light on all the negative parts of what happens in any community. So you know, I often said I didn't want B T to be the black PBS, you know, we weren't going to ever be, well, it's all good. But if we if we had a show and someone had a drug problem, well, let's show how you get out of having a drug problem. Let's show a supportive family. So we always had to balance those two um, forces, you know, being a, a profitable company, company, which a lot of people in the black community didn't even think that that was an appropriate goal. Why do you have to make money? Well, you have to make money to be a successful company or else we won't be in business. So, you know, it took us years to to work with the, uh, our audience, so they understood that. You know, when we went public, they're like, oh, you're selling out. When we sold to Viagra, oh, you're selling out. And so it was really important to stress that, no, this company is still run by African-American American executives, mostly. Uh, that's one reason I would go on the award show every year to have a face with the company. And um, you know, when when I was dealing with the reverend, I said, "Look, I have a standards and practices department. We make the best decisions we can for our community. And you might not agree with them, but I'm running the network. You're not." Mm -hmm. You know, go start your own network if you want to pick, you know, the videos. So, you know, slowly that issue resolved itself because we started reducing the amount of time that we devoted to videos. Videos became uh, very much available online. And so no one was sitting there watching a show with the top 10 videos anymore. So um, and, you know, we, we. did other kind of um, programming like Black Girls Rock and Be a Mary Jane. In Be Mary Jane, she had two brothers with drug problems. One, well, one had a problem. One just sold drugs to make money to be an architect. But again, you know, we tried to deal with it in a sensitive way. So the 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 key was always to find programming that would rate well, that a lot of people would watch, and that would still be authentic and. You know, I I heard someone say once, you shouldn't use negative and positive images. It should always be about authentic images. Mm. And that's what I tried to stick with. Okay, you know, we're not going to ignore the world that we live with. Um, But there were hard decisions to make sometimes, and they would always bring them to me. I remember one time, being Mary Jane, Mary Jane uh, had been in a car accident, and she came back to work and her face was disfigured and so she was a a newscaster so the question was was could she uh, ever really be successful again and so she had stayed off of work the scars had healed but i think she had one uh, large scar left Uh, but she looked beautiful she's all good but she was walking into work and they wanted to play some song that used the word bitch 38 times and I was like, "Really, thirty-eight times?" <laughs> but I listened to the song, and it was appropriate, and so I let it go through. We got no complaints. But we used to have a policy where we wouldn't use the word "bitch" on the air at BT at all. And my executives would come back and say, "Well, you know, ABC's using it. Own it. What? What?" <laughs> so it, it was a lot of judgment questions that went into you know, positioning the network and and getting our audience to the point where they trusted us and they believed in our um, decision making.
0: What did it teach you about decision making and how you would share that and communicate that to your peers as the leader?
1: Right. Well, it taught me that I could not always be a consensus builder. And that's, that was my inclination early on, especially as a lawyer. You know, I have kind of felt like a judge. Well, I'd hear this view, and I'd hear this view, and then I'd render an opinion. And it's not like that at all. I mean, you never have complete information uh, in a business. You make the best decision you can at the moment. And you have to realize that the the buck stops with you. Yes. You know, so you can listen to everybody in the room, but the final decision is yours. And that's the difference in being a CEO. And I encourage women especially to, to you know, buy into that, lean into that. It's your, it's your, you're running the company for a reason. Someone believed in you and they gave you the reins. And so the decision should be yours. And you can take in all the information you need. But when it comes down to it, you're the one that's responsible. And um, that's a different way to manage for women. Mm -hmm. I really, I really think it is. And I hate to generalize at all, but it's something that I had to learn.
0: Did you have the like versus respect debate in your head? Um, I, I I know. I I mean, I've, I've faced it in my own career where it's really difficult. You start out, at least for me, I started out my career, and I think that being the sort of do what, execute all of these things that right. other people want you to do, it makes you liked yeah. early on in your career. It right. gets you pretty far mm-hmm. early on in the career. Right. And then there comes a point where there as, as the decisions get a little more complicated, mm-hmm. as the asks get a little more complicated, right. just doing what other people want and expect of you is not necessarily the yeah. thing that's going to be right for the business or right for you personally.
1: Right. You can't do it. You can't make everybody happy. Every decision you make, someone's going to be a loser. Um, And, you know, and and I used to think, oh, I'll get everyone to the same point. The marketing department will agree with the programming department. They'll agree with the advertising. No, never happens. So you have to make the the best decision. You know, I I, I call it the good girl syndrome. You know, we were raised, a lot of women were raised to be good girls and to be well-liked and not to... um, you know make decisions that are are could be perceived as harmful to other people. I remember once I went home and uh I was a little dejected, it had been a tough day and my daughter asked me um what, you know, how it was work? And I said, well, it was pretty tough. All I did all day long was say no. You know, <laughs> no, no to budget requests, no to charitable contributions, no, no, no. And I was just really, you know, down because of that. And she didn't say anything at the time, but a, a while later, someone asked her what she wanted to be. And she said, I want to be uh, CEO of BET. And I was like, where did that come from? And she looked at me and she said, I like saying no. <laughs> So maybe this generation will be different. Yes. Yes. (laughs) But we weren't raised. We were raised to please and and to be accommodating. And you can't do that in business. One, you don't have time. And two, you know, you you have to be the one who um, explains the decisions one way or another, and you have to really believe in it. So if my advertising guy is screaming about something, you know, I try to pay attention, but I can't always agree with him. Mm -hmm. You know, that's not going to be the best decision for my audience and uh, or you know when i have to make decisions that a kanye video shouldn't be put on the air because you know it's it's too much you know my programming guy is not going to be happy because he's trying to maintain a relationship with kanye i'm just trying to you know <laughs> make the best decision i can so i hear him when he says oh you can't do that kanye's a genius and he's going to call you and he's going to be very upset and i'm like yeah okay I'm ready.
0: Did you ever get a call from Kanye West?
1: No. He never called.
0: (laughs) Did you get calls ever from any of the artists?
1: Um, No. Never did. A couple times from labels. Um, But uh, I remember once getting a Clive Davis letter about Heather Headley. We weren't playing a Heather Headley video. Um, But that's all I remember. And then... um, one of the hardest decisions I had to make was about Chris Brown and him performing in tribute to Michael Jackson right after Michael Jackson died. And uh, at that time, he was accused of a crime. Um, he, he had been convicted and, or yeah had come to an agreement, but he hadn't served his time yet. And um, so it was a real hard question for women is, you know, what, 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 what message would I be sending to young women if I let Chris Brown perform so soon after the incident um, with Rihanna? Um, and I decided not to let him perform, and I, I heard from a lot of people, including um, the label that he was with, and they were not happy. Um, But a year later, when he had served his time and he was rebuilding his image, he performed and no one said a thing about it. Hmm. But, you know, when you make those kind of decisions, there are a lot of factors that go into it. Um, Advertisers, what they will say, you know, what the audience will say. um, and, And you have to take those into account. But in the bottom, in the end, you have to do what you think is best.
0: So 32 years at the same company. Yes, wow. And then earlier this year, 2018, middle of the year, you decide to step down from your role. How did you come to that decision? And now we're, we're, you know, I'd say give or take six months from that point. How do you feel?
1: Well, it was, um, I came to that decision because I felt like I had taken the company as far as I could take it. And I felt like I had a great team in place. They knew my values. They knew the company's values. And there were a lot of things in place. And I felt those would continue to work. Um, So it was a tough decision because I'm so identified with BET um, that, you know, it's like walking away from a child. Uh, But I decided it was the right time. I was like, 32 years is long enough. I was you know and I hadn't really focused on it I just had my head down working and I was like what am I trying to prove you know it's time and I was CEO for 13 years uh which I hear the the typical time is 4 to 5 years so I felt pretty good about that <laughs> <laughs> Um and so I just decided it was time um and um um You know, everyone was surprised and it was a, it's a difficult uh, transition to go from something you've helped grow this long. Uh, But it was, it was definitely the right decision. And I'm so fortunate to be in a place in my life where I can say, okay, what do I want to do next? What am I passionate about? Not what do I have to do? I've done what I had to do. And I was lucky that BET, that I was passionate about BET, that I loved every minute of it. And I loved that career. But now I can think about, are there other things I want to do? Uh, And it's really, it's a fun time. It's a little nerve wracking sometimes when no one's sending me emails and I'm like, oh, my God, no one's looking (laughs) for me. And so I'm trying to adjust to that. Do you sleep in? No, I can't sleep in. And especially I've moved to L.A. So, oh, yeah, then seven you feel o- like
0: you're behind the minute you wake up Seven everything's o- happen. Seven o'clock
1: in the morning, you're three hours behind, yes. And so, I wake up and look, I'm like, ah, um, and my daughter lives with me for the time being, and so I like to say good morning to her. I'm not that she likes saying good morning to me, but <laughs> so I don't sleep in, um, but you know, I'm exercising a lot more, I'm trying to figure out what else I like to do. I'm meeting with people, I mean, someone advised me just meet with people that yes. you admire and hear what they're talking about. Uh, I'm helping the Recording Academy with their diversity and inclusion issues. They set up a task force uh, after the Grammys last year uh, about to look at women and people of color. I'm helping the African American Museum raise money for their endowment. Uh, I'm on the board of Twitter and Marriott i um, president of the board from Alvin Ailey. I just came from there. So I'm on the AFI. I could go on and on. So I'm doing a lot uh, yes. most days. You're
0: doing more yeah. than a lot of people right. are doing in, in actual jobs. Right. So. And,
1: and back to your point, I've always been a multitasker. <laughs> um, so, so it's fun. Uh, but, you know, I don't think I'll do anything full time again. But, it's, it's you know, I want to write a book. Really? I'll probably do some speaking engagement. Yeah, I think I have a story to tell. Yes. Yeah, so I'm thinking about that. Uh, so that those kind of things are exciting. Yeah.
0: What's the toughest lesson you've had to learn along the way?
1: Uh, the toughest lesson I've had to learn is to listen to your own voice. And that, you know, a lot comes from what I talked about, about being a CEO early on. It's finding my own voice and not being afraid to, to speak up. And, you know, I think the law in a little bit is a protection because, you know, know, I got to look it up. This is what it says. So I think becoming a businesswoman and learning that, you know, you have to make decisions and you have to find your own voice. And um, was there a turning point where you realized the importance of that? Or
0: was there almost like a negative experience that led you to say, I'm not listening to my own voice here and I need to?
1: Well, I think the experience with the protests about the videos was a turning point because, um, you know, in one ear I heard Bob Johnson say on his way out, don't ruin the business model. On this side, I had a programming budget that was 65 percent music videos, but I had already promised the audience I was going to change that. So I had to figure out how to keep the company profitable and move away from videos that shouldn't have been the main thing we did anyway. And I love music. I'm a big music fan. So, you know, if I saw Lil Wayne right now, I'd say hello or Chance (laughs) the Rapper. It's not like I'm not a hip hop fan. But, you know, I really knew we had to do other kinds of programming. And, um, and I knew it had to be high quality. And all of that took some guts because, you know, we didn't really have the budget for it early on. So it was a slow process, and we took a lot of criticism along the way. But now young people come up to me in the street and say, thank you. Thank you for what you did for B T. Thank you for what you did for the culture, which just gives me chills because that's so much bigger than BET. Um, and thank you for, for leading the way. So, you know, listening to my voice and making those decisions um, in, in, from my own perspective was, was all I could do. And I think that's what a good leader does. And then when you believe in yourself and you find your own voice, then others will follow you because they know, you know, you have the best interest of the company at heart. You, you know, you're trying to do the best thing, and um, they will come along. And, I, you know, I really felt good. There, there, so many points. I mentioned the um, New York Stock Exchange. Another high point of my career was we, we had a show called The Game.
0: Yes, that, yes, 2014 that, that premiered. Yes,
1: that we took over Top. from the CW. At the CW, we got a million five. It was tough to even convince CBS to let us take over the production of it because they were like, well, we canceled the show, you know. And we finally did. The show had been off the air for two years. We put it back on, bring back the production team, cut the cost because we had to, and we got 8 million viewers the first night. It's still the record holder for the top sitcom debut on cable. That's and that day we were high fiving each other like we had won the Super Bowl. I mean that's when you know you've hit the nerve. Another time with the new edition story. Twenty nine million viewers in three nights tuned oh. into that story. And it was good, bad, ugly, you know, but it was a, a roadmap of what not to do and what to do in a music career. But it was also the inspirational story of five or six young men from from Roxbury who became superstars and their trials and tribulations and so you know those moments when things really worked and the audience agreed with us (laughs) or agreed with you know the direction we wanted to go it didn't get any better than that it was really quite special.
0: What's the worst advice you've received along the way? Oh the worst advice
1: wow um I don't think I've ever gotten any bad advice or either I didn't listen to. (laughs) But I can't really think of anything. Oh, I think if I had to give advice, I would, would always say that you should have your values involved in whatever you do. So I think just running a profitable company is not something that I would do and uh if someone was advising me to do that uh that would be contrary to what i believe in you know with bet i was able to run a profitable company grow it um and um still um have an impact and and have a uh a, a legacy that that people could look up to um so and and i think the other thing is to be decent to people. Yes. You know, it's it's really important in the management area. A lot of people talk about what motivates people. Well, being a decent leader is is really one of the key lessons. Um, so you're not
0: Machiavellian. No. Better that they fear you than that they no, love you. No, okay.
1: I'm not. I'm not. And, you know, if, if that was the way it was done, it wouldn't. I wouldn't get it done. Um, So I'm glad I found a team and a company where I could be myself, be genuine, you know, care about the things I care about, because you're always making those decisions. I mean, I remember the first time uh, Rosa Parks was the first really prominent person who died after I took over. And I was like, if I cover the funeral then I'm going to become the funeral network BET not a news network but it was a hard decision to make because we got criticism well why you know people were, why isn't BET covering the funeral um, so those are hard decisions you know what you do for advertisers are hard decisions so you know you just have to have a moral compass and you have to learn to live by it um, and not bend it too much It's so, great advice yeah
0: Deborah Lee, thank you so much for joining us. Oh,
1: thank you. Thank you, Rebecca. This was great.
0: Okay, it is the end of the interview, which means it's time for our No Limits Entrepreneur of the Week, where we feature one of you, our amazing listeners, who's building something of their own. And this week's No Limits Entrepreneur is Shauna Ohm, my former CBS News producer. She is now the founder of k Linda, which translates to How Cute. The company raises money for charity by selling all different types of accessories, from jewelry to artwork to bags. Shauna's mission was to create a place that made it easier to help charities just by shopping. They donate all profits, a minimum of 50% of the purchase price, to a partner charity. Here she is to tell you more. Hi, I'm Shauna Ohm. I'm the founder of kaylinda.org. And my biggest challenge when starting this business has been dealing with imposter syndrome. The idea that I'm not really an artist, that my jewelry is not good enough to sell, that I'm not really an entrepreneur. Is this even a real business yet? And no one is ever going to come in and say like, hey, you're a real company now. So the way that I've gotten over that is basically just a fake it till you make it mentality. I was scared even to ask friends and colleagues for help with promoting the site or with partnerships. And the crazy thing is when I finally reached out to everyone, everyone said yes. So it's just a matter of waiting for your brain to catch up with what you're capable of. Um, Just go out there and do it. Congratulations, Shauna. I'm so excited for you and everything ahead. Wishing you continued success. And remember, listeners, you can head on over to my Instagram at Rebecca Jarvis to hear more from Shauna about how she created Kaylinda. Don't forget if you or someone you know should be featured here on No Limits as the entrepreneur of the week, or if you have career questions, shoot me an email here at No Limits with Podcast at gmail.com. I also appreciate all of you who have been sending in the reviews. I want to say thank you so much to those those. those of you, especially the ones who left us five stars and a note like Aram Malik, who writes a well done, thoughtful podcast, inspirational at every turn. I look forward to each Tuesday to tune in. Thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Aram. And finally, a shout out to our awesome team here that helps make this happen week after week. My producer, Taylor Dunn, editor Brittany Martinez, research assistant Lane Wynn, and the ABC radio team, David Rind, Elizabeth Russo, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, and Steve Jones.